Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Happy Thursday to you. Let's go right to Israel. My friend Julie Stahl with CBN News files a report on what Israel is planning to do to eradicate Hamas completely. Here's a report. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu rejected Hamas's demands and says military pressure is the best option for gaining the release of about 100 hostages and the recovery of 30 bodies still held by Hamas. Surrendering to Hamas's delusional demands that we heard now not only won't lead to freeing the captives, it will just invite another massacre. It will invite a major disaster on the state of Israel that none of our citizens would want to accept. Hamas terms included releasing hostages and bodies in three phases over a period of months in exchange for an unspecified amount of Palestinian prisoners, including those serving life sentences for murdering Israelis. It also called for more humanitarian aid for Gaza and a complete Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip. Netanyahu says Israel will achieve complete victory within a matter of months. The IDF creates wonders and is moving forward in a systematic way to get all the goals of the war that we, at the political level, required from it. The elimination of Hamas, the release of all hostages, and the promise that Gaza won't be a threat to Israel anymore. After meeting with Netanyahu Wednesday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the Israeli War Cabinet and opposition leader Yair Lapid today. 
He says the U.S. focused on releasing the hostages and discussed the Hamas response with Israeli leaders. What I can tell you about these discussions is that while there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. The hostage crisis is putting pressure on the Israeli government. Just after Netanyahu dismissed Hamas's terms, six women, former hostages who were freed in November, publicly called on him to accept any deal. The price is heavy. The price is unbearable. The price shrinks the stomach and body. But the price of neglect will become a historical stain for generations. Neglect will become synonymous for those who will issue a death sentence to those who were left and were kidnapped under their leadership. Elsewhere in the region, a U.S. drone strike reportedly killed three members of an Iranian-backed militia, including a high-ranking leader. The strike is part of an ongoing retaliation against Iranian assets in the region that have attacked U.S. forces and most recently killed three U.S. service members. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. I'm going to stick with my friend Julie a little bit longer because she's filed another report I want you to hear. And this time it's Israel focusing in on UNRWA, that U.N. aid group where we now know definitively that members of that group were participants in the October 7th massacre. Here's a report. Things must change, and it starts with UNRWA. Knesset member Sharon Haskell created the caucus to reform UNRWA nine years ago. UNRWA is an organization of the United Nations that is a complete cover-up for Hamas activities. They are inciting and educating children to violence and hatred. In caring for so-called Palestinian refugees living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, as well as nearby countries, UNRWA's website says its services include primary and vocational education, primary health care, relief and social services, and camp improvement. We need to understand that UNRWA is not an organization that provides education and welfare and health care. That's merely the facade. It's an organization that has two deep roles to ensure that the conflict from 1948 remains an open case and therefore that there is a permanent question mark on Israel's very existence, creating a generation after generation of Palestinians who believe that one day Israel will not exist. Dr. Anat Wilf adds UNRWA relieves Hamas of any humanitarian responsibility, a philosophy confirmed by senior Hamas member Musa Abu Marzouk, who said these tunnels are meant to protect Hamas from Israeli planes, and it's the responsibility of the UN to protect the people. There's a generation that does not know that UNRWA was started in order to undermine the state of Israel. Count Falk Bernadotte, who was the first UN mediator, he, he was upset with the right of the, the law of return. That law allows Jews worldwide to immigrate to Israel. So he said well, the, the Palestinians have to have the right of return, the inalienable right to go back to where they came from in 48, instead of being you know, absorbed like any other refugee. David Bedin started Israel Behind the News to expose teachings and practices going on inside UN facilities in Gaza and the West Bank. We have been through 1,000 school books used by the Palestinians authority at UNRWA. We were offered by a prominent rabbi $10,000 for a research grant to find anything for peace. I said, look, I'd like to have your money, but it doesn't exist. It is one system, not for hatred, but for murder. Knesset member Simcha Rotman says UNRWA funding needs to stop. So the fact that UNRWA gets money as a donation, and this money supports terror, actively supports terror, needs to stop. 
There is no excuse for educating for terror. There is no excuse facilitating the next October 7th. Wilf says, unfortunately, Israel cooperated with UNRWA for years, thinking it was a moderating force. Israel has to do a 180 and declare quite clearly that it will no longer cooperate with UNRWA. UNRWA provides no benefit, and no country that is a friend of Israel should give any money to UNRWA. The United Nations is a hornet's nest of Jew hatred, is a hornet's nest of deception, is a hornet's nest of terror-supporting policies and organizations. Dan Diker of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs says Gaza has become a forward base for the Iranian regime. Today, it's the Iranian regime that is mobilizing UNRWA with its Hamas proxy to incite to the murdering of Jews and Israelis to carry out acts of terror. They have sanctified as a strategic objective the destruction of Israel from within UNRWA compounds and organizations within Gaza. Diker believes the U.S. should lead an international body to supervise UNRWA donations until it can be dissolved and responsibility given to local Palestinians. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. And in the meantime, the Nobel Peace Prize for 2024 will be announced at 11 o'clock on Friday, October 11th, 2024. And guess who's been nominated? UNRWA. <laughs> yeah, along with the International Court of Justice, proving once and for all the Nobel Peace Prize isn't worth the metal it's embedded on. We're going to take a break and be right back. This is In the Market with Janet Parshall. Check out this month's Truth Tool. It'll help you be equipped to contend for the faith. Back after this. What if those times you felt like you were walking in circles were really God's way of leading you to his plan for your life? That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's Truth Tool. Learn how to make the most of the lessons you're learning now. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Tom Doyle joins us now. Tom and his wife founded a marvelous mystery, uh, mystery, <laughs> it's not a mystery at all, a ministry called Uncharted. They love Jesus, they love his word, and they love people. Put all those things together and they will go where the doors open. And they open particularly in the Middle East, by the way. So that's why he and Joanne talk about it a lot. Uh, the book I have up as a resource of many resources they have provided is called Women Who Risk Secret Agents for Jesus in the Muslim World. And ta-da! They've just started doing a podcast. And if we can, we'll find out about that as well. But first, Tom, I just started out with two stories about what's going on in Israel. Yesterday, we learned that 30-plus of the hostages have been killed. Mm. This mm. ridiculous, vacuous agreement between Hamas and Israel. You know, our, I, I feel sorry for the president. I truly do, because mm. it isn't going to be policy that leads. It's politics that dictate right now. Mm. And so he's getting pressured from these well-funded Marxists who are disguised as pro-Palestine from the river to the sea people mm -hmm. who are hitting the White House on a regular basis. And so now you'll find him stumbling on his words and couching the words and stepping back a little bit. And then Secretary Blinken's the guy that has to go and try to negotiate a deal. What is, it's hmm. a non-starter. You and I know that. We have seen how many deals on the table and they will be a non-starter. Netanyahu and uh, the IDF are saying clearly two requirements. All hostages returned mm -hmm. and Hamas must be rooted out completely. Now that's the, the cliff's note of the geopolitics of the situation. I want to hear from your sources on the ground because you have Jewish and Arab believers there and you have believers in Gaza. What are they telling you? 
Oh, wow. And just what you said about Hamas, I mean, are they delusional or what? And right. how did they get in the driver's seat uh, making <laughs> demands? This is ridiculous when you think about it. But, you know, um, talking to some of the believers in Gaza, and of course, they are so over Hamas, praying that Israel gets rid of them. But even just daily things like one of the underground believers, and we don't use that term too much anymore because underground brings up another image, but secret mm -hmm. believers in Gaza from a Muslim background. He's just trying to get to a hospital. with the, He's got a double pneumonia, all kinds of things. They thought he might even die. But he's in a refugee camp down in Rafah. And to go out and go to a hospital, there's Hamas snipers that shoot at him. So their their leaders try to take them out. And so they're so sick of what they've got there. And uh, also, I think any that we our heart just goes out to the families with the hostages. And Janet, there's even some stories out lately about some of the hostages that we don't we don't know if this is confirmed, but we've heard things that were just horrible mm. that it through Palestinian sites that it was saying that some of the women Palestinians were selling time with them mm. to people if wow. if that's true uh that's a new low that's yeah it's just horrible when you when you think about it so anyway that's that's the that's the scene in Gaza and you know when it comes to UNRWA we used to go in the refugee camps Janet and I mean all you have to do is go through an UNRWA office and look mm -hmm. at who's on the wall that's and exactly you see a right. cast of some of the worst terrorists of all time I mean when you go we went into one refugee camp and there's a picture of Marwan Barghouti on the wall <laughs> well who is Marwan Barghouti he's serving five life sentences plus an additional 40 years for his role in the second intifada he was instrumental in the first intifada deadly attacks you name it and that's on the UNRWA wall so how, how did they ever get to have any say in this they're a totally corrupt organization yeah, filled yeah. with some of the worst terrorists of all yeah sounds like a perfect candidate for the nobel peace prize don't you think oh, i mean gosh. it's just absolutely ridiculous so it's, one quick thing the podcaster in california who started this lie and let's call it what it is that's fomenting and gets picked up and because the internet is global this story gets legs and goes global that mm -hmm. October 7th is a false flag oh. and that the Israelis were actually killing their own people. Of all the lies I've heard since October 7th, this one is the most egregious. And then yeah. to hear people say, no babies were put in ovens, no people mm -hmm. were raped. I mean, we have forensic objective evidence to right. these ends. So I, to, yeah. I, we know that the core of all of this is spiritual. So none of this should surprise us. But boy, I smell sulfur from the pit of hell all over this. Oh, my gosh. And then, of course, Hamas filmed it. So we're getting the records from them. This is like Nazi Germany. They kept right. meticulous records. Anyone that denies it is just uh, doesn't have a brain. It's They just want to believe what they believe. So that's sad. And unfortunately, we have some friends that sit, serve in the Arab Gulf area. And actually, some of the videos that have been shown in those countries superimposed they can do things with this this uh, technology called fake out or deep fake i think mm -hmm. and they put palestinian faces on the murdered babies mm. and uh, I, I mean and they were talking to some of our friends uh, americans that and they were they were saying isn't this horrible what the jews have done it's terrible it was just merely taking the news switching the faces and blaming it on israel which that sells in the Middle East, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. So in, in the midst of all of that, um, 
And by the way, just you made me stop and think for a minute to talk about the PR campaign. I, and I don't want to go too down much a rabbit trail, but I think our mm-hmm. friends are getting a 500-level education. If you haven't been mm-hmm. to Israel, you don't know so much of this stuff. That's right. But the, the antics, I mean, for when shortly after October 7th, the same Palestinian actor kept showing up in some of the <laughs> tweets that they were sending out. And I thought, <laughs> how stupid do they think we are that we don't? So one minute he's under a white sheet and then he gets up and he walks away. So he really wasn't injured at all. I mean, it just, the That's list right. goes on and on and on. So can you talk just a second about this is what a terrorist group does. There is no check in the spirit for lying. You lie all the yeah, time. They do. And oh my gosh, that guy could get an Academy Award for playing five different people, right? <laughs> right. You know, he could get five awards if that's how it goes. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that so much. Uh, we have seen how the news is manipulated. Everything is twisted to make it the Jews' fault. It's because of them. They've done this. Everything happens that way, and they're just used to lying. So, uh, we I mean, we were in the Gaza Strip, Janet, when four men were hung for Palestinians oh. by other Palestinians, oh. and they blamed the Jews. We happened to see it. It was, it was just a vendetta. They blamed wow. it on Israel. Wow. That's just normal. Well, and I got to tell you, this is why our visits are so crucial, Tom, because it's the power of an eyewitness. And so you bring back reports from your team who are on the ground there and the things that you and Joanne have seen when you've been there. But Tom Doyle is the great but dot, dot, dot. Here's where you put the ellipse. He always says there's good news in the midst of this darkness. And there is. In fact, the word that Tom uses is the, quote, overcoming. Don't you love that phrase? Overcoming church in the Middle East. Now you're going to get the best part of the news when we return. is with us. We love it when he comes to visit because he just overflows with the love of people, the love of Christ, the love of his word. And he always, always, always sees the glass, not half full. It's always overflowing. His cup overfloweth on a regular basis. So we just talked about the dark side of what's going on in Israel. But to use Tom's word, there is an overcoming church in the midst of the Middle East. So Tom, we hunger for good news stories. Tell me about this. Oh, boy. Well, I was just talking with our Syria director, and the place is a mess. I mean, Russia's controlling, Iran is controlling, uh, the people are starving. It's so sad to to hear about people starving daily there, and the government cares about nothing. And then they're going and, and extorting money out of businesses. If you don't pay this much money, You'll go to jail for 10 years and people have to come up with $200,000. They own a business. It's horrible. The ministry team there is so motivated. And our national leader was just saying, boy, when we, his name's Amir Salam, when we're with them, all they talk about is what Jesus is doing and how the progress of the ministry and the kids that they're feeding and the widows they're helping and the people that are getting saved and former Muslims that are getting baptized. And he said they're just able to look past it. They're, they're able to resist the devil and he will flee from you. And, and they, they don't choose to look at those things. The whole country is falling apart. But so much mystery. And even a new unreached people group that's been cracked open where there's new believers there. And so we, we worry about things happening in our country and we can be consumed with things. But there's there's a there's an ability that believers in these persecuted countries have to just block out the noise, the news, all the things that don't matter and stay with the kingdom focus. And then when they want to pray for us in America, 
that's that's their number one thing they ask of us. Well, how can we pray for you? Mm. Oh my gosh, it's so humbling. And so it's no wonder that this whole Hamas effect has kicked in because there are people disgusted by what they've done. And some of them are good-hearted Muslims and have come to faith in Christ. And so one of the things we're excited about, Janet, is it's in secret, can't say what country, but there is no place for former Muslims to go and get a seminary education. In the Middle East, if there are seminaries, if one Muslim was found there, it would be shut down by the government, that'd be it, he'd be in jail. So there's a group of people that decided to do one uh, that is underground is not the best term now, but anyway, that's, that's what it is. And Muslims that came to faith in Christ are learning about the atonement of Christ, bibliology, how we got our Bible, what does it mean, eschatology, what's going to happen in the future, and we are thrilled about what's happening. And then getting back to the believers in, in Gaza that are struggling and praying, by the way, for the hostages there in in Gaza. Uh, they're again motivated by ministry, and we're going to get to feed this many people, and we get to do this. Mm. And Janet, they sent us some of the pictures of where they live in these tents, and it would just it would yank your heart out. Mm. But there they are, smiling in front of it, because Jesus loves them, and they're his representatives there in one of the most dark and dangerous places in the world. Wow. So we try to encourage them, but when we hear their stories, they encourage us. So the body of Christ is victorious in the Middle East. It's a mess, and it's way worse than it's ever been since we've been going there for 30 years, but the body of Christ is they're victorious and inspired. They have smiles on their faces. And so I think that spiritually they're saying to us, America, chin up. We're in this. We're in the kingdom of God. This is the most important thing. You're going to have to tune out some of those things and do what we're called to do while we're here as the body of Christ. Wow. Let me go back to Muslims who have uh, converted and they are now going to seminary, which is just when you stop and think about it, it takes your breath away. But what a lot of our friends listening don't understand is that in a lot of countries in the Middle East, you have an ID card that identifies you. Mm -hmm. And you can't change the M for Muslim to C for Christian right. without the government knowing that. So they can track you very much to do that. So it That's is right. a public declaration. But in some cases, it's very much of a death sentence or at least a threatening declaration. So how do these Muslims who have come to faith continue to go to the seminary in a country that will not be named uh, and keep and protect their safety? Because at some point... This um, um, undisclosed location will be mm -hmm. found out by somebody. So again, mm -hmm. there's multiple questions in that, not the, least, not the least of which is the hunger and the courage of these people yeah. to go despite what the potential threat might be. Oh, and you know what? Every single day is a challenge for them. There are people watching, they want to know. And listen, we know, Janet, what's the number one thing that gives away people that have come to faith in Christ from a Muslim background? Here's the number one thing, their countenance. People mm. see it in their family. Wow. They see the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience. They get questioned before they even tell their family. Someone will say, "What? you have a smile on your face. You feel like a burden's lifted off. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and they, they want to say, well, what's wrong with you, actually? Because <laughs> isn't that tell you something about your religion? But that's what happens. Every day is a challenge. But it is interesting with that on their card, because it's Muslim, someone's name is Muhammad, it's going to say Muslim, mm -hmm. they also qualify still to go to Mecca during the Hajj. And mm. as secret <laughs> believers, 
they are going and getting in line and praying for as many people as they're as they can. One year in the last few years, there were over six thousand believers that come from a Muslim background no. in the line praying. No, now, how's that for gutsy Christians. Well, I, and I want people to picture this. So, if you've ever seen it, they're all in white. By the way, when they go and they yep. move in a circle mm-hmm. and they pray, and this mm-hmm. big black stone is in the middle, <laughs> and it is a big deal. I remember being in an airport uh, as they were going to Mecca for the yeah. Hajj, and there were white robes everywhere. But can you imagine, in the midst of those moving white robes, there are people being prayed for to come to salvation in Jesus Christ? That, my friends, is a unique mission field. Tom, never enough time, but always so much good news. I want you to check out Uncharted Friends. And don't forget, Tom and Joanne are now doing a podcast, which is fabulous as well. So check it out, Uncharted, and check their book, Women at Risk, back after this. of the endless bias spin you hear on mainstream media? On In the Market, we're using God's Word as our guide as we examine today's events. And we want you to be informed and bold about His truth. This is a listener-supported program, so if you value what you hear and you want us to continue on your station, become a partial partner with your monthly support. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We're going to spend time now with someone who, full disclosure here, is one of the heroes in my life. He has been such a powerful influencer. And, you know, he doesn't grab center stage. He doesn't seek the limelight. He just quietly perseveres with grace and eloquence and compassion and truth. And he really does set the standard for so many of us. Robert Woodson is with us, known to his friends as Bob. He's the founder and president of the Woodson Center, and they promote neighborhood programs to empower and revitalize low-income communities. He is the editor of Red, White, and Black, Rescuing American History from Revisionists and Race Hustlers. Just went back and was going through that book again the other day. And the author of Lessons from the Least of These, The Woodson Principles. He directed the National Urban League's Administration of Justice Division, and he was a director at the American Enterprises Institute, the Institute's Neighborhood Revitalization Project. And you talk about God being our executive producer. When I asked Bob to join us, little did I know that today, I mean so hot off the presses, my pages are warm, that Bob would have an opinion piece in today's Wall Street Journal entitled, How U.S. Cities Can Get Rid of Violent Crime. But I asked Bob to come originally, and we're going to try to, Lord willing, get both of these articles into our conversation. But I want to start, Bob, if I can, with a superb piece that you wrote, another opinion piece. It was in U.S. News, and why you say that the affirmative action is an affront to the civil rights movement. And you go back to that famous speech by Dr. King about judging individuals uh, by their character, not by the color of their skin. And you talked about when the civil rights movement started, and particularly in the life of Dr. King, he spoke less, you say, about racial inequality and more about poverty. So tell us more about your superb piece. Well, thank you. Well, Dr. King argued, as, as we did too, that what good does it do to open the doors of opportunity if you don't have the means to walk through the door? If you have the right to eat in a restaurant of your choice and live in a neighborhood you're choosing, you don't have the means to exercise that right, then just having right is an empty promise. And so it is important to focus on preparation for freedom. And, but, but the civil rights movement and those who support affirmative action uh, were hostile to this notion 
and, and instead, what they, they said is rather than establishing the means for people to compete, what they said in, in a very demeaning way that we should demand equity, that we should, you know, uh, we should demand that we will be given things. Uh, thank God that I didn't get my education at a time when affirmative action was uh, around because I was a high school dropout, went into the military, didn't have much interest in education, but got my, my GED in the military. And when I got out, uh, I had the worst SAT scores, and I was admitted to a small black college on a year's academic probation along with 12 other veterans. Hadn't read a book cover to cover. Uh, at age 21, but they worked us hard. They didn't open the doors, and we studied, and they worked us hard. We drove 60, uh, six, uh, uh, 60 miles to and from work and studying, and at the end of those four years, we were then prepared to walk through the doors, and then I got admitted to the University of Pennsylvania. Mm. But if affirmative action were alive and well, then I would have been taken unprepared and put into a situation that's beyond my capacity. And the rest of my life, I would have been passed along without having the benefit of having to compete. And so that's what affirmative action does. Mm -hmm. um, what, what you should do is provide the means for people to be agents of their own uplift. But nothing is more demeaning to a person than saying to them, you don't have the capacity to be agents of your own uplift. And until and unless someone outside does things for you, you are incapable of doing for, for yourself. This is the message that is being sent by those uh, purveyors of, of inequality that is being instituted in the name of obtaining equality. Mm. You give an example in the article, and in truth, I never would have heard this story if I hadn't read your piece. And you talk about exactly what you just were underscoring, that in fact, instead of helping in many cases, it can harm and it can be deadly. And so you tell the story of a hospital in California, the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital in South Central L.A. Tell our friends that story. Yeah, rats are the rats watch riots and everything was desolate. A group of young physicians got together and decided they were going to work to open a hospital because there were no hospital services. And they opened a hospital that really attracted young physicians and others all over the uh, state. And it had 500 beds, it had 2,000 employees, and it was a teaching hospital. It was really providing excellent service for the black residents of Watts. But then the social justice warriors showed up and, and demanded that the hospital staff reflect the, the, the racial makeup of the neighborhood, and suddenly standards got, got, got thrown out the window, and instead people were appointed, were fired from positions, and instead people were hired based upon their race. And as a consequence, the quality of service declined to the point where the hospital lost its certification. And because people were dying, the hospital gained a, a reputation of being Killer King Hospital, Killer King. Mm. And, and so, and so the, the people who benefited were the middle class uh, medical professionals who were incompetent. And it also meant, meant that minorities, blacks who were competent, also did not apply to this hospital because 
the standards had deteriorated so bad that it discouraged even competent, uh, uh, well-qualified black physicians didn't no longer came to this hospital. So there's an example of, of so-called social equity destroying the poor who, uh, with the helping hand. Mm. One of the lines out of your piece was, uh, I think, very significant. You wrote, demanding statistical equity, note the difference there, not equality, statistical equity at the cost of competence injures the most vulnerable people. And the story of the Martin Luther King Hospital in South Central L.A. is a perfect example of that. Now, in your story, Bob, and in the point that you're making about the degradation of this very important hospital is that there has to be, and you, this is a word you use often that I just love, about the uplifting. There has to be that point of uplift. If making the statistical equity the modus operandi for trying to create opportunities and advantages, and in the end that comes around and hurts the very people it's supposed to serve, there is necessarily the inclusion of the uplift. Where does that uplift come from? Is that triggered by individuals? Is it done by governments? How do we provide the uplift for that person to get to the point where they can step into the opportunities that are there? Frederick Douglass said that the worst time on the plantation was at Christmas because the slave master would give slaves off for those six days between Christmas and New Year's. But he wanted the slave to interpret freedom by being self-indulgent. So he provided free rum and even had competitions about which slave or which plantation could compete. And, and they would get so sick at the end of the day, they would be willing to surrender to the slavery of a man as opposed to the slavery of alcohol. But he, Frederick Douglass said, some people succumbed to this temptation, but others used that time to support families, to go visit families. Others used that time to work so they could purchase their freedom. So your external circumstance never determines your, your fate. It is your, your response to oppression that determines. As he said, he was a man who was a slave. He was not a slave who was a man. Mm. So slavery was never in him. So that's what we must, that's what we do to low-income people. We say to them all the time, and we witness to them, not just preach to them, Janet. We have to witness to people, mm-hmm. uh, to say to them, just because you are born to, into an abusive relationship or family, just because you you were oppressed or abused, you don't have to be defined by the worst of what happened to you. That God has given you the, the, the attitude, the will to achieve in spite of the odds. And so that's the message. Nothing is more lethal, Janet, than giving someone a good excuse to fail. Hmm. To say, well, you're black and you're oppressed and you live in a country that, does, that, that has oppressed you. And therefore, until unless white people change, you can't expect to change. Mm. That's a lethal message. Mm. So important. You write in the piece that we should focus on uplifting black men and women who are already performing as excellent community leaders and innovators and who have earned the trust of their neighbors. They're the ones qualified for the work they do, and it's essential that they be allowed to do it. This is part of what you do through the Joseph Project, is it not? You identify these leaders that are making a difference. I really do. And, and these, when I, Janet, I spend most of my time among low-income leaders of all races. Uh, the Woodson Center has a group of about 3,500 low-income grassroots leaders in 39 states. 
There are different racial groups. Whenever we, in the 43 years we've been around, that we've had conferences and retreats, racial animus never came up one time. Mm. Because most of these people are more concerned about the pathway from brokenness in their lives. When they, they, you're not a red, you're not a red, black, or white junkie. You're a junkie, and you and you need to need to be delivered from this condition. And so when real people get together, it's only the elites who have time to 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 provoke this this oppressive agenda. Mm. Robert Woodson is with us, founder and president of the Woodson Center. They promote neighborhood programs to empower and revitalize low-income communities, exactly as Bob was just saying. A former civil rights activist, he headed the National Urban League Department of Criminal Justice. When we come back, his piece in today's Wall Street Journal. to spend time with Bob Woodson, just clarity of thought and the solidity of the principles that he advances. But again, so often uh, what he does flies under the radar and there's great, great news that should be making the headlines, but it's not because as Bob points out, so often it's this idea of just underscoring the animosity and the racism and the hatred rather than saying, where are the success stories? Because there certainly are success stories out there. And in a piece that just showed up in today's Wall Street Journal, and by the way, I put both of Bob's articles on our information page so that you can read them for yourself in their entirety. Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, talks about antibodies, which I love, and he's not talking about medicine. He's talking about people who influence. So the title of the piece in today's opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal is called How U.S. Cities Can Cut Can Get Rid of Violent Crime. And we get statistics every night in the news, the shootings, the the mayhem, uh, where's the most dangerous city in America to live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, speaking right into the old adage that if it bleeds, it leads. And certainly in this particular topic, that's the case over and over again. But you report that there are unbelievable stories that are going on that should be making the news, and they're not. And the Woodson Center is part of the movement that's making a difference because you've helped establish something called violence-free zones in more than 30 U.S. schools. Talk to me about that. Well, if you, in other words, um, if you go to a school of of 1,000 children, they're influenced by 10%. And that 10%, 10%. If you can identify the small number of what we call shot callers or the people who influence other kids, then you can change an, an entire population. So what we do is we go into these high crime drug-infested neighborhoods, and we find what we call Josephs. These are people, two types, those who are born into those environments but never become uh, succumb to it. They're in poverty, in violent neighborhoods, and not of it. Um, but they're still in the same circle. And the second ones were predators, but through God's grace, they become redeemed and transformed. Mm. And so, therefore, they can witness to other young people that it is possible to start your life as a predator, but they show them through their witness how to become an ambassador of peace. So they do this by witnessing to these young people. And so we put five of them in a school of a 1,000 kids, and they spend two weeks identifying the people who are the most influential in that group. And then they connect with them and witness to them. And then as a consequence of this mentoring and this witnessing to them, they convert, they make it respectful to be peaceful. 
<laughs> you see, because many kids are looking for an excuse to be peaceful without it appearing as if they've lost their nerve. And so our young people, because they're really tough, some of them are ex-offenders, some of them have been to prison, and through God has touched their lives. And so they, they, they have moral authority and, 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 and cultural re- relevance to those kids. And so we are able to then take kids who were predators and convert them into ambassadors of peace. And as a consequence, we were able to come in and change an, an entire community. We had one of the, one of the worst communities in last summer uh, where our, using this approach of using these community antibodies, we had 100 days of not a single act of violence in one of the most violent neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., mm. as a consequence of us funding and supporting these young people uh, to, to exercise their influence over others. So it's really a moral and spiritual yes. warrior's that are able to go in and, again, witness to them, not preach to them, but witness to them. Take them by the hand. You know, Bob, you've said in the past that you don't refer them as ex, you know, ex-drug addict, ex-gang leader. And I love that, that these are people who have really been restored. And they already have gravitas. They already have ethos because they stand there before a group of people who are questioning whether or not they're going to take a road of rage or the road of peace. And they look at somebody that's already earned their attention because they've been there. They've done that, but they've changed. They've turned around. So if, and and I'm coming to you from the shadow of DC, a town, you know, very, very well, why wouldn't the, the, the policymakers be looking at, and there's, they're looking at gun violence. They're looking at what's happening in neighborhoods across the country. And then you've got your violence free zones. In fact, the article in the wall street journal shows a picture of the, the youth in the Woodson centers, violence free zone initiative shop for formal clothes, a photo taken back in April <laughs> of 2022, which I thought was fabulous. I would think the policymakers would say, okay, we know what's not working. Let's take, find out, let's look at what is working. And I don't know. I'm not asking the government to get involved because you didn't. You just rolled up your sleeves and you went looking for the Josephs and the rest is cultural history. And it's a story that should be on the front page of every paper. But I would, if I were in government, at least want to not interfere, but replicate programs that were already working. Why is it slow to do that? In both the article we talked about affirmative action and in this one, you beautifully point out the balance of what progressives do wrong and what conservatives do wrong as well. So there has to be this approach that we can put this all together and everybody would start with the transcendent principle of saying we want to mitigate violence. So you talk about a fellow by the name of Willie Barney who put something together called the Empowerment Network back in 2006 and was really what the group that he formed just really went after gun violence rates that were cut in half. So talk to me about that. Well, well, first of all, you know, um, there, are, there, there, there are a lot of people who are committed to the ideology and that the ideology of victimization is more important than solving problems because that's where their money is. I mean, think about Black Lives Matter collected $100 million, Abraham Kendi, $48 million, uh, and Hannah Nicole Jones, uh, $25 million to to research racism. So they're... There are people in running these cities who have a vested interest in the problem, and they are part of the race grievance industry as well. And so there is just a pushback from embracing. And the other part is elitism. 
that most of the people that are most effective are not well-educated, they're not credentials. In this society, we believe that certification is synonymous with qualification, Mm. and that's another factor uh, in it. Uh, But also there's just powerful disincentives. That's why I don't encourage our groups to get government money. We raise private dollars for our groups. Exactly. And on that note, by the way, I want my friends listening to know I have a link to the Woodson Center. If you've heard something from Bob today that stirred your heart, that there is another way, there is a path toward peace, there is a healing toward reconciliation, there is a way to offer that uplift that Bob talked about before, then I want you to know more about the Woodson Center. Quietly making headlines in heaven every single day, even if it isn't emblazoned across the major media across this country. I can't tell you how much I love and respect and admire the work that they do. So learn more. Both of Bob's articles on our information page. Here's a hug around the neck, Bob. Thank you for all that you do and who you are. See you next time, friends.